sociopolitical issues, one man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. Welcome to your home for the Politically Homeless, the podcast for those of you who like your politics in colors other than red and blue. If you are new here, welcome. And if you like what you hear today, please share this episode with one friend you think might like it too. Now, two of the bigger stories of the past few months have been the impact of inflation on our economy and the plight of migrants at our southern border. But what if, just what if, both problems had a common solution? Well, I would not be asking the question if I did not have an answer. And in a recent article in Foreign Affairs entitled, America Needs More Immigration to Fight Inflation, Professor Gordon Hansen of the Harvard Kennedy School of Government makes the argument that we can do just that. I invited him on the show to discuss, and in this episode, we not only talk about how immigration could solve the short-term problem of inflation, but could also make our economy more competitive in the long term and potentially improve the plight of economically distressed regions affected by globalization. It adds yet another layer to the onion we've been eating over the past few months. I know that's not the most appetizing analogy, but you get the idea. I will be back at the end with my final thoughts. Before we get into the impact immigration has on the economy overall, I think it's good to start with a baseline as to how the labor market has affected the overall economy. So could you explain for the listener how much of an impact has the tight labor market had on inflation? So if we think about the burst in inflation we've had over the last year, 18 months, which very few folks saw coming, economists have have settled on three major factors that have been driving it. One is the unexpected expansionary effects of the stimulus that we thought we were going to need to fight the COVID recession. We enacted that stimulus in part because we were fighting the battle of the last recession. So in the Great Recession, the mistake that we probably made was not having sufficient fiscal stimulus after the fact, which meant that there was a sluggish recovery in a lot of different places. So this time we came in with guns a-blazing, and it turns out that wasn't the issue. But by the point we had figured that out, the stimulus was already in the economy, and that has natural inflationary impacts. Piece two is just the, the weirdness of global energy markets, a lot of which has to do with the, with the war in Ukraine and the difficulty we have in moving things like natural gas around because of how hard it is to ship natural gas through vehicles other than pipelines. And so those are two things that after the fact, we understood them pretty well. But the third piece is the labor market and the fact that we saw a big exodus from the labor force during COVID and a real sluggishness in the bounce back despite strong labor demand in a lot of different parts of the economy. And I think most labor economists are unified in saying, we don't fully understand why that's the case. And there's almost certainly not a single answer. There's folks retiring earlier than they thought they might, and the stimulus might have helped them do so. There's folks who suffered a great deal of pain during the pandemic 
either because of what was going on at home, having to care for family members, having to manage kids being in the house, and that especially for, for women and women who are single mothers or you know, and other types of caregivers. And then folks who are on the front line of this, teachers, nurses, other healthcare workers, workers in retail, the physical and mental stress that they faced was enormous. So it's not really a surprise when you look out there and say, where do we see the highest job vacancy rates? The two occupations that top the list are the hospitality industry. And so that's restaurant workers and folks who work in other kind of public facing retail stuff and healthcare workers. How much of the workforce in those two industries is comprised of foreign born versus native born workers? So in the hospitality industry, broadly defined, if we go back 10 years to when immigration was at its kind of historical peak, you had about 22, 23% of workers who were foreign born. That's now down a couple of percentage points because surprising as it may seem to a lot of folks, given the tenor of the national conversation, immigration has been very slow over the past decade. Healthcare is a bit different because healthcare requires local accreditation. It te- many parts of the healthcare industry tend to be dominated by native-born workers, but we have several avenues through which foreign-born workers play a very important role. So that includes nurses, and there are visas available for nurses to come and work in the US, as well as foreign-born physicians. But the supply of those types of workers does not respond overnight. So when mm-hmm. we need more nurses, it's not like we can call up folks in the Philippines and other countries that tend to send lots of healthcare workers to the United States and say, oh, by the way, we need 50,000 more people and they'll arrive in the next three months. That, that pipeline adjusts, but it adjusts slowly. And also, is it fair to say maybe healthcare inflation is an entirely different conversation from the general inflation we're all focused on today? It is because there's so much regulation and it's such a complicated market. But we have a crisis of sorts among our healthcare workers and among our teachers. A lot of folks who just experienced the equivalent of post-traumatic stress disorder as a result of what they went through during the COVID experience and getting them, some of those folks to come back full time, it's just, they can't do it. And we haven't figured out the right responses to either expand the number of folks who want to take up those jobs or make the folks who held those positions whole. Yeah, I mean, this probably isn't a comment or a question to ask an economist, but I'll I'll do it anyway, which is, it it seems like during the pandemic, everything just stopped. And a lot of people had time to really reassess what it was they were doing with their lives. And I think a lot of folks who were in these professions just decided it wasn't worth it and went off to do other things. I mean, do you have a sense of that? Or is that more anecdotal? It is anecdotal, and it's the the sort of question that economists are bad at at answering. You know, when it comes to <laughs> yeah. thinking about the examined life, you know, that's that's for philosophers. That's not for us. We think right. about how people respond to changes in wages and and changes in other uh, work conditions. But at the end of the day, it is something we have to think about because human motivation matters, and there are moments in history where our concept of what motivates us changes. And Mm. something important happened during COVID and we're still sorting it out because it was such a major event. It's going to take us a few years till we understand whether a lot of people just kind of said pause or it's something more fundamental going on. And because adjustment is still going on, it just 
you know, it's going to take two, three, four, five years of data before we can settle on how important that pause is going to be in the longer run. All right. Well, I'll book you in five to seven years, then we can answer that question. (laughs) One, I think, head scratcher for a lot of people is the fact that we have about six million unemployed people and we have 10 million job openings. And one of the comments I've heard from people I asked on the subject prior to this recording was, well, Americans are just too lazy to do the work. What's the real story behind that gap? When we talk about the labor market, we often try and characterize it as a national entity. There's a supply and demand for labor in the United States as a whole. That's a useful construct in in many instances in which we're trying to figure out what's happening with the business cycle. But the vast majority of Americans don't experience the economy nationally. They experience the economy locally. The number of people who are willing to move between cities or move between states in response to what happens from last quarter to this quarter in in economic conditions is pretty small. So that disconnect between the number of vacancies and the number of unemployed has to do with the fact that job demand is really strong in some places and weaker in other places, and unemployment is higher in a different set of places and lower in a yet another different set of places. Understood. And one of the things you you mentioned, too, in your article was that foreign-born workers tend to be more mobile, correct? So they tend to be more likely to move where the jobs are. That's something that we've observed over the past couple of decades, and that's in part because you think about the foreign-born workers who have decided to come to the United States to work. They are motivated by economic opportunity in the vast majority of cases. I don't want to discount the fact that there's an important motivations for immigration beyond economics. People who are seeking refuge from persecution at home, people who are seeking to be reunited with family members. But a decent fraction of the folks who are entering the United States each year from other countries are those who are coming here to improve their economic lot either by moving to the U.S. permanently or by coming here for some period of time. Because of that motivation, they evaluate places to live, not based on where their family members are, because they likely don't have that many family members here, but by where the economic conditions are best. So what we often see is on arrival, people will find a relative, somebody they know from their community, get a foothold, and then evaluate economic conditions and move to where job demand is, is strongest. That's a very different calculus for folks who were born and raised in the United States who are grounded in their local community and much harder to move. You mentioned immigration has remained relatively flat or remained relatively low over the past 10 years, correct? That's right. Now, in the last year, immigration jumped up as we measure this via the U.S. Census. And I don't know, we can go deep into that because measuring immigration is, a, is complicated because it includes folks who are in the United States legally and those who are here without documentation. But when, we, when the Census Bureau goes out and, and measures the number of people who are inhabiting the United States, they don't differentiate between legal and, and undocumented immigrants. So we did see an uptick in the last year, but that's been an an aberration since around 2006, 2007. There were a bunch of changes that happened in the U.S. economy, in the global economy regarding sending countries, the countries that typically send migrants to the United States, and an increase in immigration enforcement, which I don't think the American public fully comprehends. 
And that just made the normal channels for immigration less attractive and much harder than they had been during this 25-year period from 1980 to 2005, when we had a very big immigration wave. What were some of those changes to immigration enforcement? They started in the 1980s, picked up steam in the 1990s, and then really consolidated in the 2000s. So one was increasing the size of the U.S. Border Patrol itself and its presence at the U.S. border with Mexico by four to five times over that time period. The second was increasing the infrastructure at the border in order to detect people who were crossing without authorization. That means fencing, and there were 700 miles of fencing and border barriers put in place before Donald Trump was elected. And it means electronic surveillance equipment. It means drones. It means all sorts of means of detecting who's crossing the border. It also meant changing what happens when somebody is apprehended trying to get into the country without authorization. Until 2007, the Border Patrol operated what was known parochially as catch and release. You were apprehended trying to get in and you were just sent back across the border to Mexico or in some cases deported to your country of origin with no legal repercussions, that changed in 2007. You now got a mark on your record, your fingerprints were kept, and that meant that you couldn't apply for a legal visa for 10 years. Something that I don't think a lot of people appreciate is that most people coming to the United States without authorization, they've applied for a visa. They're waiting it out, and it might be five, seven, nine years before they clear the queue and they come to the U.S. to wait it out. And that's not everybody, but it's a decent chunk of of the folks historically who've been sneaking across the U.S.-Mexico border. So if I'm hearing you correctly, then, what's gone on with that policy is that people have effectively had a pause put on their ability to get into the United States, and so their choices are really to cross in illegally or sit on the other side of the border and wait until their number's up, correct? Correct. And so the the sum total of all of that enforcement was a sharp reduction in undocumented immigration after 2006. And then at the same time, the U.S. went into the Great Recession, had a pretty sluggish recovery. Mexico wasn't having an economic crisis. Other sending countries weren't doing too badly, with the important exception of the Northern Triangle uh, countries of Central America. So El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala were the three places in which we saw increased attempts to get into the United States in the last decade, but they were kind of going against the tide of what was happening across the board when we look at the sum total of that attempted entry. Now, COVID Mm. comes along and it blows up all of that and creates a strong incentive for people to seek asylum as a way of getting into the United States. And so we face yet again a new set of challenges about how to deal with migration flows that we haven't experienced before. Mm-hmm. The asylum part is, is new, it's unprecedented, but the challenge of folks trying new routes of entry in response to other routes of entry being closed is something we've seen again and again over the course of US history. You know, one of the things that we talked about in an earlier episode was how there's a large number of people from parts of the world that have a very large working age population looking to migrate to the U.S. So if you look globally, it's Latin America and sub-Saharan Africa right now have the largest number of working age people as a percent of the total population. We also have demographics working against us in the United States in terms of an aging workforce. And there seems to be 
a way to solve two problems with one policy. So I guess if you were to go and reform our immigration policy with the idea of, of reducing inflation, where are some of the areas you'd focus? I think the, the best thing we could do is to create legal paths for entry and that allow folks who take up those legal options to earn their way into permanent residence. That path of, of starting off with a temporary work visa and ultimately ending up with a green card could be a long one. The right number of years might be 10, 15, or 20. But we want to give people an incentive to declare, why do you want to come here? If you want to come here for a job, then let's create an opportunity for you to come here for a job. But let's make sure that your route of entry is going to be through legal means. U.S. employers, by the way, are strongly in favor of this. They pushed for immigration reform three times in the last 20 years. Each time it's failed. And I think a solid majority of the American people would support this idea. But we're at a moment in history where immigration has again become a lightning rod. It's happened several points before, and demonizing immigration becomes an effective political strategy on the part of some political entrepreneurs in the country. And right now it happens to be the Republicans. It wasn't always the Republicans who are taking up this mantle, but right now it is. Well, one of the things we talked about in the last episode, too, was how this rise in nationalism was, was very, very attractive to the areas hardest hit by globalization. And I know part of your work is on the regional impacts of globalization in the United States. And when you look at the places that could benefit the most from expanding immigration, do some of those regions fall into the mix or, or no? They do. So I've looked at, in work I've done with David Otter at MIT and, and David Dorn at the University of Zurich, first, just how globalization caused localized job loss in the United States. And that we've come to appreciate very well, both in its economic terms and in its salience in the, the national political debate. Those were the same places that tended to increase their vote disproportionately for far-right GOP candidates in the last decade. They also increased their vote share for the Republican presidential candidate in 2016, which is Donald Trump, relative to their Republican voting tendencies in the past. So what we've seen that this a political response to localized job loss. Now, you then need to a story that you're going to tell people about why your jobs were lost. And Donald Trump very inventively put two arguments on the table. One was China had a lot to do with it, and there's a plenty of evidence to support that. The second was that immigration was a big part of it, and immigration is part of our national economic decline, and that's a much, much harder story to tell, but mm -hmm. it resonated with folks because when in moments of hardship is when our nativist tendencies are most likely to be triggered. If you look, go to the UK and look at the parts of the country that voted most strongly in favor of Brexit, so not about immigration really, really about the way in which the UK was integrating with European economy. They were strongest in places where immigration was least. And but it, they were all that Brexit vote was also stronger in places where you'd seen more manufacturing job loss from globalization. Hmm. And so would there be an impact again if, if we were to expand the legal pathways to working in the United States? 
would that do anything to ameliorate the effects of globalization in these regions? Would it do anything to rejuvenate the economy or would they still be kind of stuck in the same situation? So one idea that's put on the table are what are what's known as heartland visas. So each year the U.S. lets in around 85,000 folks on H-1B visas that primarily go to highly educated professionals, many of them in the tech sector. Companies apply for them and companies then and designate where they're going to employ those folks. They tend to be disproportionately employed in big coastal cities that are doing very well economically. One of the things that's essential for economic recovery is job growth. Job growth requires a mix of workers in terms of skills. And the places that have seen job loss in in the past are often places that have a dearth of college educated labor. You have non-college educated workers who are hungry for work, but companies come in and say, okay, you have non-college educated labor here, but where's our college educated workers? Where's our engineers? Where's our technicians? Where's our managers? Without that mix of labor, it's hard for us to select a place just because there's a bunch of able-bodied factory workers ready to take up the mantle. So the idea of Heartland visas is to tie a visa for more skilled workers to locating in places in which job creation for not for for that group, but for the non-college educated would be most valuable. And this is not a new idea. It's been running around for 10, 12 years or so. So that'd be one way to use immigration as a place-based policy to try and redirect some of our economic dynamism towards places that have been left out of economic growth for much of the last 20 years. Do you have any examples of the of areas that would be impacted by that? So there are a bunch of communities in the southern Midwest and kind of northern southeast that saw substantial job loss due to import competition from China. Hickory, North Carolina, it's a furniture manufacturing community, saw substantial job loss as a consequence of that import competition. The textile manufacturing belt that stretches from southwest Virginia into northern Georgia also saw a substantial job loss. So right now we're seeing we're seeing news about how a battery belt developing in the south, where we're going to produce the batteries that will power electric vehicles. And that's great. Those those are good manufacturing jobs. I haven't looked at this in depth yet because this is still emerging. My guess is most of that job growth is happening in regions that were already doing well economically. And if you go two, three, four counties away, you're going to find places that suffered major manufacturing job loss over the past 25 years, but they're not getting the battery factories now. An example of this comes from Ohio, where Intel, which is going to get money from the CHIPS Act to build a semiconductor manufacturing facility in Columbus, Ohio, is putting it in Columbus, a place that's done just fine over the last couple of decades because you've got Ohio State there. uh, You've got a, a good supply of workers tied to the modern technology economy. It's not going to Middletown, Ohio, which is where J.D. Vance is from. We need what we need are policies that help us generate job growth in Middletown and not Columbus. There's not an easy way to make that happen, but are there any plans to try and make that happen? Well, what's interesting is there's a tremendous amount of local experimentation that's going on right now below the radar. Some of the money to help make this happen comes from the federal government. 
but the inventiveness, the plans, the ideas are coming from local actors. One of the things that, that we've been learning about the U.S. economy over the past couple of decades as we look at job loss and its consequences and, and how we help it recover is that there's this important sort of meso layer of economic organizations that are central to recovery. They're loosely called economic development organizations. So these could be groups that help recruit new businesses to a company that are funded in part by a combination of public and private money. The right place in Grand Rapids, Michigan is a great example of that sort of, of a public-private partnership. They could also be entities that have a pool of capital that they use to make investments in places where they see the social return to investment in terms of generating job growth as being pretty high, but where private capital on its own is not going to go. So the Regional Industrial Development Corporation of Southwestern Pennsylvania is an example of that sort of operation. So what we're seeing is, um, is kind of Tocqueville's America, these membership yeah. associations that are self-organizing around trying to help solve local economic problems. And Washington is, is very much following their lead, but through an alphabet soup of government agencies that makes that coordination harder rather than easier than it should be. Understood. Because it seems like it does seem like a bit of a catch-22 where you need the educated labor in order to get the investment, but you need the investment to get the educated labor. And then when you throw a subject like immigration into the mix, that just complicates things even further. Yeah, so you know, the, the immigration part is really interesting. If I were talking to policymakers from the left and the right and trying, and trying to get some cohesion on first steps on, on place-based policy, I wouldn't mention immigration at all because that's going to shut mm -hmm. down the conversation immediately. It is so politically contentious right now that I wouldn't want that to distract from this broader mission of our need to catalyze investment in human and physical capital in places that have suffered protracted job loss. That said, behind the scenes, I would say, man, immigration is a very fast way to get some of these gains. And I wouldn't be shocked if we see movements in this direction over, over the next decade or two. The thing that we don't appreciate about immigration policy is how malleable and adaptive it is, despite what seems to be inaction on the part of, of Washington, D.C. There's stuff that happens on the margin to redirect our efforts in ways that, that respond to the national economic and political conditions. Yeah, tell me a little bit about that, because I think a lot, you know, we, we tend to be so focused on the border with Mexico when we talk about immigration, we don't think about the fact that there are numerous other places where people are entering and numerous other countries. Where are some of the areas where you see kind of nibbling around the edges, so to speak? One of the biggest has been through providing temporary work visas to agricultural workers. So mm -hmm. this is the H-2A visa program, and this is now uncapped. So that means that there's not an annual allocation of visas that, that employers are fighting over, as is the case with the H-1B visas for more skilled professionals. And with the H-2B visas, I'm sorry to overwhelm you with, with um, <laughs> policy nomenclature here, the H-2Bs go to seasonal construction workers, seasonal workers in the tourist sector and so forth. But H-2A is about agriculture. And the inflow of those folks has increased substantially. It's a couple hundred thousand a year now, uh, up from you know the 
the um, you know, 50, 60,000 10 or 12 years ago. Uh, and that is something that uh, Congress allowed to happen. The administration took a lead in making this is uh, in making this happen and about which both Democrats and Republicans from agricultural states are in support of. Mm. You this that that reminds me of another comment I heard on the subject, and this was from people on the left, which was in, in some respects people have been celebrating the fact that there's this tight labor market and the fact businesses have to raise wages. And one of the comments I got when talking about the way immigration could could potentially, or when one of the comments I got when exploring the idea that increasing immigration could actually take some of the inflationary pressures off the economy by reducing wage growth, their response, of course, was wage growth is a good thing. Or, you know, maybe some of the more sarcastic folks talked about how we'd just be importing slave labor. What's your response to that? So it is true that certain types of immigration are going to put downward pressure on wages and limit economic opportunity for native-born workers. But not all immigration does that. So to to think about where immigration helps and where immigration might hurt native-born workers, think about the different ways in which a native-born worker would experience immigration if they worked, say, in one of these new EV battery factories versus if they were working as in, say, laundry services or domestic help within a given city. The thing about a battery factory is that you aren't selling batteries to the local economy. The new battery factories going into Georgia and South Carolina are going to export these batteries throughout the United States and and hopefully globally. So when you add, say, a foreign born engineer who's going to come in and help expand production in that battery factory, it's going to increase demand for workers in the factory floor. The arrival of that immigrant worker is going to expand labor demand for the native born, not contract it. And that's because it's an export industry. So when you add workers, you're able to expand production and you're not taking jobs away from anybody else. So people think of immigration as a zero sum game. It doesn't have to be. Now, if you now think about a a city in which we're going to add a whole bunch of of immigrant workers who are going to end up in things like construction, domestic help, laundry services, childcare. These are sectors in which you're selling goods and services locally. And it's not as we add one more worker, it's not like we're demand. It's not like there is an elastic demand for childcare in a place. It has to do with the number of workers who live in a particular place. So adding workers in that industry might, in fact, take jobs away from some native born workers. So that's where thinking about providing. And I know this is getting kind of wonky, but. Immigration matters in different ways in different sectors and in different regions. And through the through the intelligent use of visas, and this is not super sophisticated, doesn't have to be, we can make sure that immigration serves to expand productive capacity for the United States and increase demand for native-born workers rather than the reverse. Is there a threat of us throttling the supply of talent and the potential for new patents and new companies and new technologies to be developed in the United States if we just keep it at the current level? There absolutely is. So I have a a recent study in which I looked at where are we creating jobs in AI? 
the jobs that are tied to AI tend to be ones in which foreign-born workers are a very high share of employment. So the regions in the U.S. that have seen the largest expansion in AI-related employment are ones that prior to the AI takeoff had succeeded in attracting large numbers of foreign-born workers. So what that means is that we can define how competitive we want to be in, in sectors like AI, either in, in creating artificial intelligence or applying it in a bunch of different downstream sectors. And we can control how good we are via the supply of visas that we make available. Now, this the what makes this a pressing national issue for the US is that we have China on the other side trying to keep workers who might come to the US to get masters or PhDs and work for, for US tech companies at home in order to fuel an, an AI boom in the Chinese economy. So we have two very different models that are in collision right now. A, a closed, domestically oriented one that wants to shut off the rest of the world in China, and a US model which historically has thrived on a global top competition for talent and letting entrepreneurs come in and figure out where we should go and what we should do. If we shut that down, we are restricting one of our key capabilities in the frontier ends of technology that would best position us to take on China in what it's trying to do. Do you get a sense as to why people still want to come here? Because I feel like it, it hasn't been the most inviting climate for the foreign born over the last few years. Uh, that's certainly true. But that, that climate you talk about is something that you would get from watching cable news, from, from perusing news sites that are take a hard line against immigration. Think about where most foreign-born workers in the tech sector are going to locate. They're going to locate in the major cities on the coast. They're going to locate in the San Francisco Bay Area, in Los Angeles, in Washington, D.C., in the Boston area, in San Diego. Um, those are places that have been very friendly to immigration. And so your experience there is not the experience that you would perceive were you to read Brett Bart or watch Fox News on a given night. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you did, please consider leaving it a review. I have a link to Gordon's article in the show notes, and for additional commentary on this episode and other issues of the day, you can click another link in the show notes or simply go to ydhty.com slash news. Now, takeaways from this conversation. The first is that immigration provides some short-term solutions when it comes to tamping down on inflation in industries such as hospitality and agriculture, but there's a long-term threat posed by us not doing our best to attract more top talent globally. And as I listened to this conversation again, I was reminded how the U.S. took the lead in the nuclear race in part thanks to Jewish scientists who came to America to escape the Nazis. And I think we kind of have a chance to repeat history here. If we get immigration right, we could put the U.S. in the lead for high growth sectors such as battery manufacturing and artificial intelligence. 
Now, the consequences of us falling behind aren't simply being a laggard in these industries, but potentially creating a ripple effect that could keep America from being the attractive destination it is and the dynamic economy it is today. I think the irony in all this is much of the anti-immigration sentiment is coming from the areas most affected by globalization and the areas that might get a significant economic lift if we opened our doors. I'd love your thoughts on the subject, so feel free to email me at heydan, that's H-E-Y-D-A-N, at Y-D-H-T-Y dot com. As always, music courtesy of QuellerTac, Y-D-H-T-Y's Director of Continuous Improvement is the Admirable Admiral Adam Yaffe. Y-D-H-T-Y is produced in loving memory of the big Gino, Jason Putney. Until the next, this is Dan Sally. Oh, bye-bye.